Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, rethinking how we combat generational poverty. We have a motion in a second. I'll go ahead and ask for a roll call vote, please. Okay, Supervisor Christie. No. Supervisor Hines. Yes. Supervisor Scott. Yes. Chair Grijalva. Yes, item passes 3-1 with Supervisor Christie voting on. Thank you and thank, thank you, you so all much. for being here. We appreciate it. That was Pima County Board of Supervisors Chair Adelita Grijalva leading a December vote for an effort that could result in a major revamping of how governments in the Tucson area address economic mobility. The effort, called the Prosperity Initiative, is a program that asks each municipal or tribal government to take into account a handful of ideas in order to reduce intergenerational poverty. Now, before we go any further, we want to bring in The Buzz's producer, Zach Ziegler, who's done a lot of research on this. Zach, welcome into the studio. Well, thank you. Now, Southern Arizona has a notable problem with poverty being passed on from generation to generation economic financial opportunity for for young people who grew up in Tucson is much lower than it is for young people who grew up in in our comparison cities. That's Jim Kaiser, a former editor at the Arizona Daily Star and author of a paper on opportunity in Pima County that is frequently cited in the Prosperity Initiative. The opportunity that is available within Tucson is not anywhere nearly equally distributed. Basically, the city is economically segregated with much more opportunity north of River Road than south of River Road. Kaiser's paper pulls much of its data from Opportunity Insights, a project out of Harvard University whose mission is to find scalable solutions to barriers to economic opportunity and its companion project, the Opportunity Atlas. It's headed by economist Raj Chetty. Now, we asked for a recorded interview with Opportunity Insights, but we're only able to talk with someone off the record. Dr. Chetty did give a lecture at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, a city that found it had similar issues to Tucson. We're taking data on 20 million kids, essentially all kids born in the United States in the late 1970s and early 1980s, linking them back to their parents using information from anonymized tax returns covering the entire U.S. population, mapping them back to the exact area in which they grew up, and in each of those areas, calculating a very simple measure of upward mobility. We ask, what is the average household income that kids report on their 1040 tax forms when they're 35 years old? If you look on their MAP website, Opportunity Atlas, it's easy to see people who live in what are often thought of as well-off places like the Catalina Foothills, Oro Valley, or as specific as the Sam Hughes neighborhood, earn more money as adults on average. Jim Kaiser explained to us what the MAP shows. And what you find is that kids who grow up in areas with higher general income These kids have a lot more opportunity in adulthood. It's not that there is something special about the wealthy. It's just that if your parents have more money, they have more money they can put into helping you prepare for school. They can get you tutors. They can give you experiences that are not available to people who don't have money. And also you'll find often better schools or in higher income neighborhoods. There are census tracts in Pima County where childhood residents earn as little as $10,000 on average and as high as $70,000. 
we need to begin as a community to begin looking for ways of how we can provide more opportunity to the children who grow up here. And, and we need to get together and say, what are we doing that will help kids who grow up here and become adults to do better in life? Raj Chetty says that can be done in three ways. The first is to reduce segregation. You might say, if I know that there's more opportunity two miles down the road, why don't I try to help more low-income folks move to those better neighborhoods? Second, recognizing that you can't possibly move everyone and not everyone wants to move. I think it's equally, if not more important, to think about place-based investment. And then third, recognizing you know, the key touch point for most kids after they're age 18 is not the home in which they're growing up, but the institution of higher education that they're attending. And that is what the Prosperity Initiative aims to do. It lays out 13 general policies that largely push towards those three areas and guides government toward increasing the ability of those who grow up in the least economically privileged areas to earn more than their parents did. The person whose job it is to oversee that effort is Pima County's Bonnie Bazada. I have a wonderful title for Pima County. I'm the Ending Poverty Now Program Manager. I always say no pressure. The project started when Tucson City Council member Lane Santa Cruz approached Bazada about studying a way to reduce generational poverty across both the city and the communities that surround it. Policy is often, especially around poverty reduction, is usually written for the state and federal level. So we knew some of the things was beyond our capacity. So we had to think about what would really fit into our toolbox. Bazada began by assembling a group who could weigh in on the different ways that would help come up with guiding principles that could be used by any entity to try and end the poverty cycle that's locked in for many in the area. We had about close to 70 experts that we would go back to and say, okay, here's our, our outline, you know, what's your feedback on this? So there was a lot of input and conversation around these, and we had a deadline. So we had originally said five to ten policies. We came up with 13. But they also had a group of three cross-policy strategies. Because we felt like, as we did the research, that they were so important that they almost need to be seen as a lens that you looked across all the policies. Those three strategies are to focus on crime reduction and prevention climate resilience and environmental justice, and take a two-generation whole family approach to the problem. The first public meeting where the Prosperity Initiative went up for a vote was the Pima County Board of Supervisors. As we heard at the start of the show, it passed three to one. That lone no vote came because Supervisor Steve Christie thought it best to wait until a vacant seat on the board was filled before voting on a matter that could set county policy for years to come. Prior to that vote, the initiative received large amounts of praise from Supervisor Rex Scott, whose district is largely comprised of the parts of Tucson where children have been the most prosperous. I'll tell you what really spoke to me right away in the cover memo that the board got from the county administrator. Uh, she said that the most basic measures of success are increased income and assets and decreased household costs. And so we need to be able to show that anytime we make a policy decision on the board or anytime our staff 
recalibrates the focus of a, of a county initiative or program, we need to demonstrate to the public that we're getting the desired results. Scott says that while this is largely a framework, it does one key thing. It changes the budget-making process. He says that in the past, the starting point for budgets was how spending happened the previous year and what worked or didn't work. But if you look at the Prosperity Initiative, uh, one of its central principles is moving to what's known as priority-based budgeting. And that's where uh, the county will first identify its key priorities, goals, and objectives, and the Prosperity Initiative helps set the policy framework for us to do that. That will help to determine how we make budgetary decisions. It will help the county administrator and her team to determine how to make budgetary recommendations uh, to the board. In fact, Bonnie Bazada says now that the board has approved the plan, looking at the budget is the next big step. One of my immediate tasks is that I am going to be going department by department to identify the things we're already doing, look whether we are have opportunities for more better coordination or collaboration. And that coordination and collaboration isn't just within county government. It goes beyond to cities and towns, the Pasquayaki and Talna Altam tribal governments, and various nonprofits throughout the area whose work aligns with the values of the project. And then look at what people might have on their wish list of things they want to do but haven't had the funding or support to do, kind of see what we think is the most effective and what we might want to prioritize out of that. The next government entity to sign on was the city of Tucson. Its vote came earlier this month. It was approved by the mayor and city council unanimously. And, of course, the person who helped get the initiative rolling was council member Lane Santa Cruz, a vocal proponent. So I was actually um, working with Bonnie on some state uh, policies and initiatives around, you know, addressing poverty. That's Bonnie Basada from Pima County. You know, kind of looking at a whole spectrum of policies that we could pass at the state level, not having the wins with the state legislature um, that we had hoped for. I was like, instead of waiting around for some of these things to move at the state level, what can we do at the municipal level to start piloting and encouraging this. Santa Cruz realizes the project sounds ambitious and expansive. But I think for myself, anytime that you're carrying work out, it's not just like like continuing to do band-aid approaches to things that come up. It's like, how do we create, how do we map out for ourselves a framework that we can follow with goals and metrics that we know that if we're actually making progress on it. And I think that's been missing in a lot of our city policies. It's like, how is it being informed by data? And we can start to address um, a lot of the inequities that we have, um, not only in our society, but here in the city and the county, um, by not only collecting that data, but then making that match of the policy that can help, you know, address some of those data points. She says the initiative is also a situation where the old saying, a rising tide lifts all boats, will prove true. I think that when we center our most vulnerable, we all benefit. That if anything right now, having communities and families living so impoverished impacts our economy. It impacts the types of parks that we have. It impacts the types of public services that we all have access to. So I think the more we help stabilize uh, low-income communities, the better off we're all going to be. The prosperity initiative that Bonnie Bazada's team wrote is nearly 300 pages long. 
It contains 13 policy recommendations, 10 implementation guidelines, and three cross-policy strategies. And if all that sounds like government legalese to you, you're not alone. After the break, we talk to some of the nonprofit partners who weighed in on the Prosperity Initiative to see how they think these initiatives can be applied to actual work that will change Southern Arizona. You're listening to The Buzz. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. And I'm Zach Ziegler. This week, we're looking at Pima County's new Prosperity Initiative, a policy framework that could set how the area tries to end intergenerational poverty for years to come. Before the break, we heard about the problem of intergenerational poverty, how the initiative came to be, and some basics about priorities governments can set to lessen the issue. But as we said, this is a sprawling document, hundreds of pages with language that doesn't spell out specifics. Some policies seem easily implementable, such as this one, quote, provide health insurance enrollment assistance to protect against medical debt. But others feel a little less concrete, like this one, quote, improve housing stability among renters and homeowners, especially in high-poverty, low-opportunity neighborhoods, by preventing evictions and foreclosures, increasing homeownership, developing more affordable housing, and reducing home energy and weatherization costs. If your eyes started to glaze over while that was being read, you're not alone. So how does a policy go from words on paper to concrete programs? We reached out to a variety of groups that voiced support for the Prosperity Initiative to ask them how these items get put into practice. For example, how do we, in the real world, improve housing stability among renters and homeowners, especially in high-poverty, low-opportunity neighborhoods, by preventing evictions and foreclosures? Get the point? And that's not the only time housing is mentioned in the Prosperity Initiative. The first three all have to do with housing— calling for increased and diversified supply and improved quality of life and opportunity in high-poverty neighborhoods. So how can a government entity change something that is mostly determined by the private sector like housing? You know, of housing cost we've seen over the over the years here in Tucson is wrapped in and around permitting, wrapped in and around regulation. That's Michael Guyman, president and CEO of the Tucson Metro Chamber of Commerce. So when you have that high of a percent wrapped in and around regulation, there are definitely ways that we as a community can regulate some of those elements so so that can address some of the cost. He says an example of this could be the Sunshine Mile, a stretch of Broadway heading into downtown Tucson that is a part of the Rio Nuevo Special Taxation District. There's a real great chance for us uh, as a community, to maybe use some of those Reno Eva dollars to offset some of the cost for the development in and around that area, or at least there's um, tax credit options. He also talked about loosening regulations around zoning, a tool frequently used to keep out multifamily housing or more affordable homes from some neighborhoods. A great example of this has been Oro Valley, quite frankly. For years, their council would just simply not allow for increased multifamily housing, apartment buildings, condos. Uh, And part of the reason for that was they felt, look, we're a single family hometown. Well, that's not really how you develop towns. Um, You do allow for a greater density, uh, a greater mix. 
And so that all has to be lumped into this to allow for those diverse housing options. And you need to have those different options. Another idea for fixing the housing issue comes from Kelly Griffith of the Center for Economic Opportunity, a nonprofit focused on combating social and economic justice issues through research, policy, and advocacy. At some point, we need to have a conversation about what's happening with private equity. Honest to goodness, these guys are coming in, they're buying these properties, increasing the rents until people cannot afford to live there anymore, and that's the goal, is to get people out so that then they can do some superficial whatever and bring people in at much higher rents or flip the property. She says that doesn't mean that programs such as rental assistance and foreclosure mitigation aren't needed also something that the United Way of Southern Arizona's Lisa Florin agrees with. Sometimes for a family, they might just need one or two months to get back on their feet. And in those cases, emergency assistance is really the best eviction prevention, especially if you know they have steady income and they just didn't have savings to cover some kind of emergency. Griffith says improving and beautifying high poverty areas can tie the area of housing into our next topic. Environment. Yes, the trees matter. Dealing with heat islands, it matters for health. Access to health care is important. When you live in poverty, you have much worse health outcomes. Some, like the policy we mentioned earlier to provide health care insurance enrollment assistance, seem straightforward enough. There's also the idea of reducing unintended pregnancies by increasing access to contraception, especially given that the county provides low or no-cost care through clinics. When it comes to education, the initiative focuses on the two farthest ends of the spectrum, increasing access to high-quality early childhood care and education and training opportunities after high school. Michael Guyman says child care is an issue that is causing the workforce to not be as productive as possible. Ready Nation did a study and it found out that child care, the access to child care, or the inability to find quality child care in Arizona cost our state $4.6 billion. By the way, that $4.6 billion is, is a combination of the cost of child care mixed in with the loss of productivity. Because if I'm a working parent... And it's more expensive for me to put the child in child care annually than what I make at my job. Well, I'm going to stay at home with the child. Both Guyman and Kelly Griffith mentioned the success the county has already had in this area with the Pima Early Education Scholarship Program, or PEEPS. Basically, what this is is a program for uh, low to moderate income working families to get scholarships through the county with all these other contributing cities and towns for their child, three, four, five-year-old, to attend a high-quality preschool. That program exists. Would I like to see it quadruple? Yeah, sure, I would love to see, you know, instead of $10 million, I'd like to see it be a $40, $50, 60000000 million program. That program, they said, also helps preschools reach that high-quality standard. The Prosperity Initiative does give mention to what comes after preschool but before post-secondary. Griffith also mentioned the importance of not forgetting about public schools in the equation. Part of it is just that our public schools have been starved of resources for decades. When you do tax cuts, vouchers to private schools, we're draining money away from our public school systems. And so you have public schools and neighborhoods of wealth 
where so much of the money is supplemented by property values and by parents. And allowing for more economically mixed neighborhoods may put children who grow up in poverty in the schools that are funded by those high property values. What comes after K-12 education interests Lisa Florin. You know, pursuing a post-secondary degree, research has shown time and time again, it's one of the biggest drivers in exponentially increasing the income over your lifetime. I mean, that's been played out. I don't need to <laughs> to hammer that home too much for anybody. It's very believable. And I do want to reiterate that when we say post-secondary education, it's not necessarily just traditional four-year college. It's also associate's degrees. It's also technical certifications, anything beyond that high school diploma. Michael Guyman says the employers that make up the Chamber of Commerce often talk of the same lack in Tucson's labor force. What I often hear when I'm having these conversations with industry is I'm fine with entry-level positions. I can train them up. It's a very basic job. I can get them through the door. I'm fine with very, very high-level positions. They're coming out of the University of Arizona, and I can put them into this position, and throughout time, they'll gain experience, but they have that core knowledge. It's really that middle that we have an issue with. And that's where it gets into the trades. It's where it gets into that five years of experience that companies really struggle with. Lisa Florin says the best way to get today's children ready to fill those middle skill jobs that would likely mean economic advancement may be a bank account. Some of the research that we compiled around children's savings accounts and saving for post-secondary education, it was suggesting that even opening a less than $500 savings account shifts the expectation for the child that they are more likely to pursue post-secondary education if they just know that there is some money being put aside for them. And that idea is backed by research from Opportunity Insights. It goes even further, suggesting that opening an education savings account with a small amount of money for every child, even if it's just $50 or $100, would significantly increase post-secondary education. Next in the policies is a single item about improving access to transportation and mobility, particularly in disadvantaged communities, so that the people who live there have better access to jobs and other resources while lessening issues like traffic injuries and air pollution. Michael Guyman says there's already a community-wide effort that does a lot of that, and it's up for renewal soon. In 2006, the voters of this community passed a regional transportation authority. That has, I think, done a great job of, from a regional perspective, uh, try to solve some of our transportation issues. Uh, Is it going to solve all of them? No. Next is a single item on expanding broadband into rural areas, another topic Guyman and the Chamber are interested in. One of the problems that we saw early on in the pandemic was You know, the city spent that $7 million on uh, broadband access, and it ultimately provided access to about 995 individuals. That $7 million could have gone so much further if we actually sat down with our industry partners. Our industry partners are so eager to assist with this issue. The Prosperity Initiative then wraps up with items geared toward increasing financial well-being for those who grow up in poverty. It starts by stressing workforce development so people can get into higher-paying jobs, something that Kelly Griffith thinks will help keep future generations from falling back into poverty. 
You know, if you're making enough money to pay your bills, it changes the quality of the life when mom and dad are making enough money. It really sets the the stage for future success for their children. She says all of a sudden, parents are now able to think more about opportunity for children rather than just providing for their basic needs. But a thriving workforce isn't enough. There need to be jobs that match with the new skills that workers are learning. Michael Guyman says that's about acknowledging what, as a region, we're good at economically. Uh, and that's aerospace and defense, renewable energies, uh, renewable technologies, uh, that's mining, construction, that's health sciences, and it's transportation logistics. It's understanding those core industries that Tucson does really well in. Then creating pipelines for training that fits those needs. But if that job isn't there for someone, another idea is to help them create it by encouraging entrepreneurship and fostering small and micro businesses, particularly when it comes to entrepreneurs of color, women-owned businesses, or those operating in high-poverty neighborhoods. We heard Michael Guyman and others say there's a lot of programs like this out there already, but the problem is making sure those who need help know that there's people out there waiting to help them. I think there are ways we can be that one-stop shop for people who has an idea. They can, they can go and learn more about uh, what some of those options are. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, I think there is a huge awareness problem. Lisa Florence says that issue goes beyond help for entrepreneurs and into the last policy issue, teaching people how to manage their money. Very few people know that we have so many resources here. Most of them are free. The ones that aren't are very low cost. But on the other hand, I also empathize with the general public for maybe not jumping always at free financial education as their number one way they want to spend their free time. She says that education is important because of where most of us learn how to handle what we earn. You learn so much money management from the household that you grow up in, from the people that are around you. So depending on what that situation is, you might be getting wildly different information. That problem summarizes a lot of what we heard about families staying in poverty from generation to generation. We heard from many people that it's a matter of breaking the cycle by allowing people a chance to think beyond the day-to-day needs and think about how to give their children the advantages that maybe they didn't have. Pima County Supervisor Rex Scott. I think one of the most significant components of the Prosperity Initiative is the two-generation approach because we do need to focus in on the needs of children. The majority of people in our community who live in poverty are its children. But you can't help kids as much as you want to unless you're also keying in on the needs of their parents. Tucson City Council member Lane Santa Cruz. The only thing about why this was so important to me is that it was my own lived experience, right? I grew up in Section 8 housing, using public transportation, going through the Head Start programs, my parents having to work multiple jobs and trying to figure out like, okay, we have that anecdotal experience, but how do we connect that to the data so that we can improve the outcomes? And so I know that I want obviously my children to be better off than the conditions I had. And it's rough, you know, even having a PhD education, you know, having such low wages, 
in this town, you know, impacts the the kind of um, stability I can offer my children. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Desiree Tucker. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.